just outstanding. This was your Sunday to go to the beach, and uh, I'm glad to see some of you stayed here. In August of 1986, a man that you may know by the name of Dr. Wendell Step came to be the pastor of this church. At that point, I had been here all of my life, and he came in in 1986. About a year later, about the same time of the year, I left Columbia to go to seminary. So I was a member of Dr. Estep's flock for, a, well, about exactly one year, now that I think back, one year. But I want you to know that for the past 32 years, he has treated me like one of his own. Uh, like a second son, almost, no disrespect meant to Eric. I know Eric's number one, but I would like to think that I'm somewhere not too far behind. And he knows this, Dr. Estep knows that I love him, but I want to stand in this place today and let you know that I love Wendell Estep. I also want to say this, um, after every Moses, you pray that God is going to send a Joshua. Your pastor search committee has done an outstanding work. They have been faithful. They followed God's leadership, and they are recommending to you the next great senior pastor of First Baptist Church of Columbia. Uh, West Church will serve you well. Now, I do expect that unless the Russians get involved in the church conference, he's going to win by a unanimous vote. <laughs> this marks the eighth time that I have been privileged to stand in this place or maybe across the hall here in the other building. Eight times. The first time was New Year's Eve, 1989. And you didn't know this, but over these last 28 years, I've been slowly preaching an eight-part series, and I'm going to finish it today. <laughs> and further, what you don't realize is that I'm starting a new one today also. I'll be 85 when I'm done with it. This morning I have a challenge to lay at your feet and it may not be exactly what you're expecting. It's not about pastors coming and going. It's not about Moses. It's not about Joshua. It's not about Israel. It's not even about the church. It's not about this church. It's not about any church. It's not about West Church. This message that God has given me is a call to you personally. And this is a call from Scripture to personal purity. Now, you may say that's a strange challenge to bring on a transitional Sunday. And maybe it is, but this is what I think. I think that if the people of God will follow the Word of God, then the church of God will see a move of God. But it doesn't begin in the church, in this church house or in the pew. It begins in you and your heart and your life. If you want to be ready for your new pastor when he comes and to go beat the world beat back the gates of hell, it's not a question of is the church ready, it, are you ready? And it takes place right here in your heart. So, I hope you believe this is true because it is. Now, if you struggle with personal consistency, I know that I do. I think all of us do from time to time. That is, if you struggle with being the same person regardless of where you are. No matter where you are, are you that same Christ follower? No matter who you're with, are you still following Jesus uh, with all of your heart? Now, if you are struggling with inconsistency, then maybe your behavior or your morality or maybe even your vocabulary, maybe these things shift 
Maybe they conform to who you're with instead of to who you are. Then if that's the case, and I've been there, I'll probably go back. We all walk in and out of that territory, but if that's the case in your life, then you understand that you are bearing a weight in your life that God does not want you to bear. You're bearing the weight of living a double life. The double life is very heavy. And let me just assure you that if you keep living the double life, what's going to happen? It is going to catch up with you and that heavy weight will ultimately crush you. God doesn't want that. So he gives us a little bit of help in the little book of 1 John. 1 John is just a great book, uh, five chapters, 105 verses. I'm moving through this book uh, week by week in our church in First Baptist Newberry, 1020 Boundary Street, Newberry, South Carolina, 29108, uh, www.fbcnewberry.com. And Steve, Dr. Phillips, where are you? I'm not sure where the line is between your territory and mine, but you know, whichever way the car goes on Sunday morning, it's all good, either here or there. God gives us three little reminders of three big things in 1 John chapter 3 that will help us overcome inconsistency. First, we need to remember what we are. What we are, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1a. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. Almost everybody I've ever encountered or ever heard of has some kind of code of conduct or standard of behavior. Almost everyone has some notion of right and wrong. And beyond that, almost everybody I know uh, has some kind of intention to live up to whatever it is that he or she believes is right. We have the, the notions of right and wrong. We have the intentions of living up to them. Uh, but the problem is not intention, is it? The problem is motivation. If you have insufficient, inadequate motivation to do the right thing, then you probably will not do the right thing. Christians, for example, that would be us. I hope you're in the family. We know what the Bible says. We know what is right and wrong, but by and large, we do know there's some things we wonder about and we kind of dig down to get the, the answers down in the weeds sometimes, but we generally know what is right and wrong, what the Bible tells us about how we should live our lives, and we generally intend to live that way, don't we? We know what the rules are. I hate to use the word rules, but uh, that's what they are, isn't that right? And, and we, we know what they are and we intend to live by them. Our problem is motivation. What is your personal motivation deep down in your heart as you seek to follow Jesus? What motivates you to right living? I can tell you if you set the bar too low in that motivation department, you're not going to live for Jesus like you ought to, or, and I won't either. We're all in this together. Some say, well, as a Christian, and I go by what the church says. The church says this, and so that, that's my motivator. Other people say, well, it's the pastor. I hope that's not what your motivation is, but today it should be. Okay. It's what the pastor says. That's what I should do or be. Uh, what the Bible says. Now, that's the best one out of the list. Christians should. Christians shouldn't. We have all these parameters that we uh, lay down in front of us to, to abide by uh, these boundaries and these motivations. The Bible says. The church says. The pastor says. The sermon said. The lesson said. The deacon said. The so-and-so said. And we go by all of these motivations. But I want to tell you, 
the Bible being the best one of the list, still every single one of those motivations for right living, are you listening, is inadequate. It's not going to get it done. I've looked in Scripture and uh, I've found in 1 John, I ran across it as we're moving through this series, uh, this fact that the highest motivation I've ever seen for right living and following Jesus the right way, the highest motivation is that we are the children of God. We're the children of God. It's not that we're called children. I don't know if you saw that. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. If we're only called the children of God, then that sort of sounds like a, a legal construct or some kind of a fiction that we're not really His children. We're called the children of God. But the verse doesn't end there. It says, and such we are. In fact, the word such at the, at the end of that verse doesn't really belong there. The scribes and the editors added the word such uh, to clarify. I don't think it needed any clarification. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called the children of God and we are. Now, how did that happen? If you're a child of God today, how did you get into that relationship? The Gospel of John chapter 1 verse 12 will give us some help. It's a simple statement. The Bible says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Simple as that. These two words are easy to remember because they sound a lot alike. There's believing and there's receiving. According to Scripture, we believed in Jesus Christ, his gospel, we believed in him, and then we received him. Believe gospel, receive Jesus Christ. And in response to our faith, the loving Father saved us. There are a lot of ways to say that. Uh, you've been uh, converted. You've been born again. You've been saved. You've become a child of God. That's one of my favorites. But what we need to see is what he, he adopted you. When he didn't have to, he adopted you. You're his child. And this relationship that you have with him after being adopted by him upon your putting your faith in Jesus Christ, this relationship makes you very, very different from the people of this world around you who do not know Jesus. Now, we can get into trouble with political correctness sometimes where you'll hear that everybody on the planet is a child of God. All God's people of every nation and every tribe and every tongue, we're all God's children. The Bible says, no, we're not all God's children. We've all been made by God. We're all creatures of God, but the only people who can say they are children of God are the ones who have been adopted by God, and that adoption comes by faith in Jesus Christ. And we are fundamentally different from the people who are not His children. We're new people. We're changed people. We have a new nature. The new nature we have is given to us by our Father, and the people of the world do not know it, do not have it, and cannot understand it. Now, why am I saying all this? It seems like a little side point. 1 John chapter 3, the next part of verse 1, verse 1b, says the following. For this reason, the world does not know us. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Now, that makes sense. What this means is those people that you work with or you go to school with and maybe, uh, unfortunately for some, maybe the people you live with, uh, they don't know the Lord. You are God's child. They are not. 
and that means that they don't understand you. They don't understand you because they don't understand God. They don't really know you because they don't know your Father. They don't get you because they don't get Him. And that is related to our problem with consistency in this way. Because we came face to face with our sin and face to face with the Savior and His blood and we elected to put our faith in Him and He saved us. We chose to trust Jesus. We chose to accept His radical salvation and He has changed us radically and permanently. We mess up because we still live in this world enamored with what we see and we would rather blend in than stand out. I may not be speaking to anyone in this room, but I can tell you I'm exposing my heart to you. I'd rather fit in and blend in than stand out many times. So the first thing we need to remember when we're trying to become more consistent in following Jesus is remember what we are. We are the children of a loving Father. The second reminder from 1 John is this. What we will be. What we are and what we will be. Let me ask you a question. What do you think personally is the highest honor that a person in this world can have? You say, well, maybe being elected president of the United States. Or maybe winning the Heisman Trophy. Or let's one up that. Winning the Super Bowl MVP award. Winning the Miss America pageant. Winning a Grammy an Oscar, an Emmy. What is the greatest, the highest honor a person can receive in this world? I want to tell you what that is. The highest honor you can achieve in this world is to be called and to be a child of God. That is the top. It sounds like it's low. It sounds like it's at the bottom. That is at the very top of the list. It is the highest honor you can have. But listen. The highest honor is not the highest blessing. Now give me a second and you'll understand where I'm taking this. The highest honor is something that we have already. It is a status. It is a position. It is a place that we hold, that we have in the family of God as a child of God. But it's not the highest blessing because the highest blessing is something we do not have yet. The highest blessing is on the way. What is the highest blessing? And and I'll give you a hint. The highest blessing is the fulfillment and the ultimate eternal outworking of the highest honor. Listen to 1 John chapter 3, verse 2a. Beloved, now we're children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. Sometimes it makes all the difference in the world when you read scripture to put the emphasis in the right place. We are children of God now, but it has not appeared as yet what we will be. So we have the status, we have the relationship, we're in place, we're locked in, that's never changing. But then later, someday, we will have even more than that. And we don't know much about it at this point. You would think that there would be pages and pages in Scripture explaining to us what it will be like to be with Him in heaven in eternity someday, that we could just find book, chapter, and verse, or maybe book and chapter, and just read on and on and on about what it will mean, what it will be like as God's children to finally receive that blessed 
situation of being with him in heaven. But the Bible just doesn't tell us much. This verse says it hasn't yet appeared at what we shall be. But we do know a couple of things. What do we know about this high blessing that will come our way? Let me show you. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2b. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. That's one of those verses that, you know, we'll just skip over and we think well, that's kind of a throwaway verse. Let's just find something that has a little bit more meat to it, something more important. Let's fast forward through that verse and get to the real stuff. No, that verse is the real stuff. Look at what it says. First, we know that he'll appear. That's a guarantee. It's a promise that the Jesus who saved you is going to come back. And when he comes back, he's going to set in motion all of the, the things that are going to happen at the end. He's going to stop time. He's going to stop the world. He's going to call us home. He's going to do a lot of things. It will begin. It will be the beginning of the end when Jesus comes back. That is when he appears. And he will appear. But we also know something else from this verse. When he appears, at that point, we will begin to be like him. Now, this is not some kind of a God-maker theology. We do not become God or gods, but in some ways we do become like Him. Two ways I want to highlight. First, we become like Him spiritually. Secondly, we become like Him physically, that is, like the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we become like Him spiritually? Or how will we when we are with Him, when we see Him? We will be sinless. Not yet, but we will be. We will be perfect not yet, but we will be. Temptation? We won't fall for temptation then. Do you know why? Because there will be no temptation. There'll be no more failure, no more mistakes, no more sin. Those things will be gone forever. In that sense, we will be like him. We will be without sin. We'll also be like him physically when he appears. You know, the Bible says of Jesus that he is the firstborn of the dead. Now, that can sound a little bit creepy if you don't really know what is being mentioned or discussed there. This is what that means. Jesus came out of the tomb on that first Easter morning as the first of many who will have this same transformation, who will receive what we call resurrection bodies. The firstborn of the dead means that there are going to be a lot more born of the dead. Doesn't sound exciting to you? Let me tell you what it means. It means that in that day when he appears, we will be made perfectly whole. It means that sickness and disease and aches and pains and even death will be off the table. Those things will be removed. They'll be gone. What about worry? Let's amp it up a little bit. Depression. Can you hear me? Depression, anxiety, anybody have issues with it? Those things are going to be done away. They're going to go away. They'll be gone. Spiritually, we'll be like him, perfect, pure, sinless. Physically, we'll be like him in this way, that we will have permanent, perfect resurrection bodies. Now, here's one reason that we struggle with consistency. It's because we are still... Even though we know these things, we're still enthralled with the world, with the temporary. We're enthralled with the preliminaries. We live life looking down instead of looking up. And when you look down, you can't see where you're going, and you stumble and you fall. 
So reminder number one to help you with consistency is remember what we are, children of God. Secondly, remember what we will be. We will be like Him. We will be perfect spiritually and physically. The third reminder is this, what we must do. What we must do based on what we've seen already. 1 John chapter 3, verse 3. And everyone who has this hope, what hope? The hope of the return of Jesus, the hope of the resurrection, the hope of spiritual perfection. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him does something. What does that person do? He purifies himself just as he is pure. I'll say again, as simple as that. Ladies and gentlemen, we each and every one, we're all impure. I grew up with some of you. I know you're impure. And you know I am too. But I don't know that because I know you. I know that because I know people. We're all impure. Nobody's perfect. Every single solitary child of God has manifest inconsistency. We know that. But that's not the final word. Here's why. Because we've been rescued from it. We've been adopted by a loving Father. And we need to understand something. Are you ready? We show. We show what we really think of our Father and His love by how we live every day. The proof is not in the talk, it's in the walk. I want to ask you a theological question. I think you know the answer. Is it true that only God can remove sin? Now just think about it. That's a rhetorical question. That means don't really stand up and answer it. I've had that happen in churches before. It's really unnerving. I just want you to know. True or false, only God can take away sin. Well, let's turn to the book of Proverbs for our answer. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 9. The answer comes with a question. It says the following. Who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from my sin? Who can say that? Who can say, I have cleansed myself from my sin? Asked the writer of the proverb. What's the answer? The answer is nobody. Nobody can say that they have removed their own sin. God has to do it or it doesn't get done. He has to work it out or it doesn't get worked out. And he works it out. He does it beautifully and perfectly. It's all about Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11 says, But you were washed. You were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You were. It is a done deal. It is completed. It is finished work. And it was all done in, by, through, and for one person, and that is Jesus Christ. Well, if we can't remove our own sin, if it takes Jesus to do it, and he does it once and for all when we come to him in faith and when we're adopted into his family, what in the whole wide world does John mean when he is speaking for God and saying, we need to purify ourselves? I thought only he could do that. Let me answer it with a little story. Surely you recall that on the night on which Jesus was arrested, he and his 
disciples were in an upper room and they were going to have supper together. But they came in there and their feet were dirty and nobody had arranged for somebody to come in and wash feet. And you know what happened, right? Jesus girds himself to wash the feet. He gets the water and the towel and he gets down to business starting to wash feet. And Peter, loudmouth Peter, of course, would have none of it. He objected and said, no, 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 you're not washing my feet. Well, then Jesus had an answer. Remember what he said? He said, if I don't wash you, you will have no part with me. If I don't wash you, you will have no part with me. Peter said, well, in that case, get the hose. Because I need you to wash me all up one side and down the other and inside out. Here I go. Because Peter understood he needed to be cleansed by Jesus. But he didn't really understand because he missed the point that Jesus was making. So Jesus gives Peter a little bit more help in understanding what he was talking about. The Gospel of John chapter 13, verse 10. This is what Jesus said. Jesus said to him, He who ba has bathed, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. Well, now, what does that mean? Don't you love it when a verse is read and it, you just go, I don't understand what that means. That may be one of those verses you've seen all your life and you just skipped over it. It's too much work to figure it out. Well, if you don't know what it means, let me just help you a little bit. It means that Peter, the follower of Jesus, already had saving faith. Now, you say the cross hadn't happened yet. How could he be saved? Don't you understand that the blood of the cross flows backwards and forwards, forwards to you and me and backwards to those who put their faith in Jesus before he died? Peter had put his faith in Jesus Christ. He had been saved, so to speak. In other words, Jesus is saying, no, 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 Peter, you, you've already been washed. You're already clean. You're totally forgiven. But Peter, you do need to tend to those feet every once in a while. That's what he's saying to us. Every Christian has been completely and totally and permanently cleaned, cleansed, Inside and out. Jesus has washed our hearts clean. Period. But we do need to take care of our feet. When we get dirty, and we do. When we make messes, and we do. We need to not let the mess or the dirt linger. We need to wash it off. Isaiah gives us an idea of how seriously God takes sin... In the lives of his people, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16. See if you can get the vibe for how important this is. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. He's saying, I don't want to look at it. I don't want to see it. Remove it from my sight. How can you remove anything from the sight of God? He's everywhere, he sees everything. How can you do that? The only way to remove something from God's sight, to remove sin from God's sight, is to do what? Is to stop doing it. And that's how the verse ends. Cease to do evil. Listen, when a lost person sins, you've heard this. I didn't make it up. When a lost person sins, he breaks the law of God. When a Christian sins, he breaks the heart of a loving adoring, sacrificing father. 
when I was in middle school, lo those many years ago when everything was in black and white, I was a member of this church and we had this thing every summer called Beach Retreat. Some of you are survivors, Debbie, of Beach Retreat. And we'd head down to Garden City of all places and the church would rent all these houses. Y'all get condos and high-rises now. We had beach houses with fans and no air conditioning. And we'd go down there and we, would, we had mandatory daily devotions. And this is what they looked like. We'd line up after uh, our meal and our prayer and we'd each be handed a piece of paper with questions on it, spiritual questions, questions for introspection. And we'd take the, the paper and a pencil and our Bible and we'd go down onto the beach and all 30, 40, 50, however many of us there were, we would fan out all up and down the beach. It was the strangest thing to look at. And all these pagans, sorry, walking up and down the beach and all their swimwear, they looked at us like we were some kind of cult group. I'm sure they thought our next step was to just go walking off into the waves. So we'd sit there and we'd read our Bibles and we'd follow along with these questions and we're supposed to answer and respond and pray. A very meaningful time. We, we call those, y'all remember? remember? It's called silent sounds. You're supposed to be silent. Get into the Word of God and listen for His voice. Silent sounds on the beach. Well, one day I was out on the beach with all of my middle school cohorts and colleagues and we're spread out. We never spread out far enough. They always want to say, spread out farther, you're too close together. They didn't want us to talk to each other. So I was sitting there and I was disinterested and I was distracted, not paying attention to the word or to the sheet of paper with all those great questions. And you know what I was doing? I was just sitting there on, on the dirt, on the sand, and I was looking at it and I was just digging a hole. I don't know why. I, I wasn't looking for anything. I was just digging a hole in the, in the, on the beach. Maybe I thought if I go deep enough, I'll hit water. I don't know what I was thinking. Well, I wasn't thinking. That's the deal. And suddenly, I began to sense a foreboding presence. It wasn't the Lord. It was H. Edwin Young, pastor. He was the intimidator before Dale Earnhardt became the intimidator. Dr. Young had walked up and down the beach with guard dogs and all this, I don't know, and he spotted me digging a hole in the, in the sand with my Bible shut with a piece of paper closed up in it. He crouched down beside me. I braced for impact. And I will never for the rest of my life forget what he said. I don't know whether he made it up or not, but it sure is good. He said the following. Two men stared through prison bars. One saw mud. The other saw stars. If you're a child of God, quit digging in the sand. Let's agree that we should live life looking up into the eyes of a loving, giving, sacrificial father who was willing to stoop and adopt us into his family. Let's live 
looking up. Please bow with me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are inconsistent. We make mistakes. We commit sin. We waver. We waffle. We are enthralled by this world that doesn't even get us. I ask you this morning, Lord, to do business in our hearts. Help us, Heavenly Father, to relish the relationship of being your children and to live our lives looking Godward instead of earthward. Heavenly Father, we ask you to reach into the souls of the unsaved and put conviction in place that would draw them to your side. And we ask these things, Heavenly Father, in your name. Maybe you've not been yet adopted into the family of God. The adoption, the, the work has already been done. The heavy lifting, the Lord Jesus has already taken care of that. It is only for you to believe and to receive. This invitation is for you. If you've not yet taken that step, then I want you to come forward in just a moment and tell someone who will be standing at the front, I need Jesus. I want to be adopted. I want to be a child of God. Maybe you are already a child of God. The conviction in your heart is not about being born again. It is about living like a child of the Father. Maybe you need to make a commitment to purity, to consistency, maybe to ministry. Maybe God's calling someone to the mission field. But at the very least, He's calling you to wash your feet. Wash your feet and start today. This invitation is for you. Regardless of what God's calling you to do, you come now as we stand together and sing. Ministers will be at the front to receive you. remain standing Albert thank you 